Got your Bibles? Turn with me to the book of 2 Kings. You doing okay today, everybody? Quick check, everybody all right? Good. We, we've been in this series called Greater. We've been talking about dreaming bigger and starting smaller. And if you've been here over the last few weeks, then you know that we talked about this life that God has called us to that is greater, higher, grander than we might could imagine or ask. And the fact that God often asks us to do small steps of obedience to walk in faith with what He's going to do. And over the last few weeks, we've talked about a lot of stuff. We've talked about digging ditches as just a a way of showing God that we are ready to receive whatever He's going to bring. We talked about burning the plows, which involved getting rid of things in our lives that would prevent us from being able to live greater for the Lord. Uh, We've talked about the fact that sometimes the only explanation we need for obedience to God is because God said so, and so we're going to do it. And today we're going to talk about what happens when life doesn't quite go as you've expected, but more than that, What happens when you have kind of drifted away? You see, what I'd like to tell you is that living the greater life for the Lord means that as soon as you make those commitments, you dig those ditches, you burn those plows, you begin to work towards what the Lord has called you to work towards, that life suddenly becomes smooth. And that it's like ascending a gentle slope that you just gradually go to the top of what God's called you to do. But here's the truth. It doesn't work that way. You start on that path and inevitably when you begin to live for the Lord, something is going to try to knock you off what you're trying to do. Anybody experienced that before? Yeah, if you, I have. Most of us have. And the problem I've coined in light of recent events is that one of the problems in America is we have a lot of UT Christians. You know, those Christians that do really well when everything's going really good. And then something bad happens and everything collapses around them. Anybody watch the game last night? Right? If I hear anybody say Roll Tide, they get escorted out of the building this morning. You you know what I mean? I was watching a a college uh, football preview show yesterday and they were talking about the games and somebody was trying to build up that that game last night might actually be a game. And somebody said, one of the analysts said, I think they've got a shot to shock the world. It's going to be closer, and in the end, they're going to have a chance to win it. And one of the other analysts looked and said, that's not going to happen. He said, because as soon as something goes bad for that Tennessee football team, they give up, and everything goes downhill from there. There are a lot of believers that start their passionate pursuit of the Lord Something bad happens, and I give up. And everything goes downhill from there. I mean, now, we're not intentional about it. In fact, sometimes we don't even realize it's happening, and then something will happen, and boom, it hits us right in the face, and suddenly we think, how did I get here? How I remember a time when, how did I get here? It's like we wake up and suddenly realize that the tank of passion we had for the Lord is now empty. That the affection we had for our husband or wife has now become stale. and something we have to do. That deep ache in our lives to see friends and family come to know the Lord Jesus has waned. 
The dreams that we had that God had called us to have become distant and seem unreachable. We've allowed a hurtful comment to blossom in our soul into bitterness. We've begun to rely too much on what used to be or the old victories instead of today. We lost our sense of gratitude with the Lord. We have our priorities jumbled. We find ourselves in the midst of relationships, friendships, romantic, and we think, how did I get here? It's not intentional. And most of the time, it's not a cataclysmic event that causes it. It's just a consistent movement away from the Lord. The question we have to ask ourselves, and the question I want to look at today from a strange story in the Old Testament, is when we find ourselves in that place where we have moved, how do we get back? How do we reinvigorate our lives? How do we recharge that passion? How do we begin to live again for the greater God has called us to? Because here's the truth. At some point, if you live this Christian life long enough, at some point you're going to find yourselves in the doldrums, in the staleness, in the how did I get here moment. Second Kings chapter 6, verse 1. What we have in... 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 1 is the story of a guy that lost something and had to figure out how to get it back. Verse 1. The sons of the prophets said to Elisha, Please notice that the place where we live under supervision is too small for us. Here's a quick background on this. Elisha apparently had a school for guys that he was training how to become um, prophets. Uh, we'll just, for our purposes, think of it as seminary. All right? And he's got these guys in seminary and they're working under him, they're learning under him, and all of a sudden, they realize it's grown too much and we need more space. We're living in a place that's too small. So they ask, they say, let us go to the Jordan where we can each get a log and can build ourselves a place to live there. They simply say, hey, listen, we've got to go down to the, the river, we need some more space. We'll build it if you'll give your permission. We'll go down there. We're going to do some capital improvements at the seminary. We're going to build some new dorms. All right. Elijah has a quick, simple answer. He says, go. And then one of them says, please come with your servants. I'll come, he answered. So he went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. And as one of them was cutting down a tree, the iron axe head fell into the water. And he cried out, Master, it was borrowed. That seems kind of a strange thing, doesn't it? Not, I lost it, or where'd it go, but, hey, I borrowed that. We'll get there in a minute. The man of God asked, where did it fall? So when he showed him the place, the man of God cut a stick, threw it there, and made the iron float. Then he said, pick it up. So he reached and took it up. A guy goes to building this dorm, and one of the guys is chopping away when what happens? The axe head comes off. Now, for you and me, that doesn't seem like a big deal. If I'm chopping some wood in my backyard, which, you know, happens pretty regularly, like never, but if I were, and I, you know, I hit the axe head wrong or something, and the axe head broke off, what am I probably going to do? Quit, that's the first thing, right? 
And I'm probably going to go down to Kmart, Walmart, Ace Hardware, Home Depot, and get another axe, right? Because axes aren't that big of a deal. In their day and time, an iron axe head was very expensive. Now, who lost it? What was the, the guy that lost it? What was he? One Elisha, right? Who was it? It's one of the students, right? So here's why this is a big deal. He's a seminary student. Any of you ever been in seminary? All right, I have. We were wealthy in seminary according to the seminary standards. You know why? Because my wife was a teacher. When a teacher's salary is considered wealthy, the line of being considered wealthy is not that high. I've told some of you this. Our first apartment in seminary was 600 square feet and had four rooms. We literally could sit on the couch, put our feet on the coffee table, and change the channels on the TV with our toes. All right? No, that's a nice visual image, but that was how cramped it was. Seminary students are Poe. All right? Somebody has said, that's a joke at seminary. You're not even poor because you can't afford the OR. All right? You used to have nothing. This guy had nothing. And it says in there, he asked, you know, the first thing he says is what? It's borrowed. That's not even a good translation. The actual translation is, I begged and begged for it. Like, I had to go somebody and ask them. Sometimes, um, sometimes when you, uh, uh, my children will want something or want to do something, they will beg and beg and beg. And one of those particular things is to take food into the living room. Now, some of you don't have a big deal about that. That's fine. When you've got nine, six, two, three-month-old, taking juice into the living room is a major, you know, privilege. And when you say, sure, this one time I have said no, 4,222 times, but right now you can take it in there, you can audibly hear when the cup gets knocked over, right? Uh-oh. This is one of those uh-oh moments. Now, it's more than that for him, because guess what the law said you had to do if you dropped an accent in the water and couldn't retrieve it? You had to replace the axe head. They didn't have any money. Not only did he not have any money, he was among the people that had no money. They couldn't take up a collection and all buy an axe head. So he was in bad shape. Now in some ways it's good to see that God cares about even the minuscule details of the axe head, but to this guy at this moment, this wasn't a minuscule detail. This was a major ordeal. And this is what I want you to, to see. When you get in trouble, when life kind of beats you down, when you have one of those aha moments, how did I get here? The first thing you've got to do is you've got to know where to go. Where to look. Now there's a few aspects of that I want you to see. First of all, you have to realize, and it's the first step in almost everything we see in Scripture, realize your part in where you are. Now, this guy wasn't doing anything bad, right? In fact, he was trying to do some good things for the Lord. And so the truth is, sometimes we live in a world where we're just 
a part of a fallen world where circumstances around us will contribute to us not being able to do what God intends for us to do. And we have to live under that understanding. Sometimes other people do things to us that cause us grief, problems. Sometimes relationships are part of what lead us away from the Lord. But a lot of times, not necessarily in this guy's case, we look for reasons all around us that we're in the situation we're in, and the situation we're in was caused by us. The first thing he does is he announces the direness of his situation. Now, to us, like I said, that's a strange thing. Master, it was borrowed. But that was all he needed to say to get the gravity of the situation across. I have no hope of retrieving it. I have no hope of paying it back. My time in your school as a prophet is done. My life is over because I will spend the rest of my life paying off this debt. Some people say, well, why don't you just go in the river and get the axe? There are a couple of reasons. First of all, because the Jordan River was really muddy, and we have to remember they did not have complicated scuba diving gear. You couldn't see. Secondly, you have the difficulty of picking up a heavy iron axe head and pulling it to the surface. It was a hopeless situation. He admits what's going on. There are people that sit in church week after week after week after week after week who have walked away in some way or distanced themselves from the Lord and they fail to recognize the distance. And week after week after week, they find themselves in the exact same situations. You need to admit you're part of it and then know where and who to go to. I love his master. It was borrowed. And the man of God asked, well, where did it fall? And he took him to the place where it was. Now, you think, well, that's just kind of a minor detail. That's part of telling the story. But this story is so short, every detail is important. Now, what he wants us to realize here, I believe, is that he asked him, let's go to the place where it was lost. The idea is that in our own lives, when we find ourselves distanced from the Lord, we need to ask ourselves, where was I last close to him? Was there a moment, was there something that started this downhill slide? Maybe it was a word of criticism that got you off track. Maybe somebody wrote a nasty email or you overheard a conversation and you started to believe those things that they were saying. Maybe you started to rely too much on a formulaic approach to God. Well, if I do this and this and this, then God will do this instead of the passionate pursuit of the presence of God. Maybe you started to feel entitled to what you have. I've served long enough. I've done enough. I've given enough. I ought to have instead of gratitude maybe you entered into a bad relationship with people that weren't interested in following the lord or helping you follow the lord and you've begun to drift away because of that maybe you've started to see the blessings in your life as curses those children that you prayed about over and over again are the ones messing up the living room and talking back to you the husband you were so thankful for on your wedding day is now one of the difficulties in you growing in the Lord. You know, I was uh, 
We had a wedding in here yesterday, and I'm always fascinated at a wedding to hear those vows repeated. Man, those are some heavy stuff, right? If you're married, I invite you this week to go back, and if you don't have your vows, find some vows on the Internet somewhere and read them. Because what you promise in that exchange, first of all, is virtually impossible to keep all the time. And as I was sitting there, one of the things I have to do in a wedding, and this is probably something I shouldn't admit, so y'all don't tell anybody, all right? is to hold back a smirk as I watch them say these things to each other, not having a clue about what they're really saying to each other. Amen? It's okay, married couples, to say amen, amen. And in a relationship, one of the things I tell them in premarital counseling, and one of the things I tell them if they, you know, as I talk to them afterwards, one of the things that's important in any marital relationship is to remember how God brought you together in the first place. So that when you get down the road and things get difficult, you can look back and say, but I remember what God did here. And it gives you confidence to move forward. When I was growing up, my brother's here today. When I was growing up, he and I um, liked to play video games a little bit. And there was a time growing up that he was a lot better than I was, but I got a system one year for Christmas called the Nintendo Entertainment System. How many of you remember the Nintendo Entertainment System? All right, It was the one where when the game wouldn't work, you had to blow on it and push it in. By the way, somebody just did a scientific research, got paid to see if blowing on the cartridge made any difference. All right, And I, we had these games that we would play. One of our favorite games to play was Super Mario Brothers. Right, You know, the bouncing into the question mark and the mushroom and you grow big and the fire suit and all that. One of the things that was always frustrating about that and another one of our favorite games was a game called Mike Tyson's Punch-Out and you had to fight against guys. I remember Soda Popinski and um, Raging Bull and uh, all those guys. And at the end you had Mike Tyson. But what was frustrating about those games is back in that day they did not have a feature called Save. And you would play a game for a couple of hours and get to a point where you were almost past the level and if you died, guess what? You started all over again. One of the greatest inventions in the history of the world is the save feature on video games. Some of you have grown up a privileged life. You do not realize how great that really is. Right? Here's the thing about God. It's going to come around, all right? One of the great things about God is we don't have to go all the way back to the beginning of our relationship with Him. Most of the time when we've kind of gotten off track we can go back to that last place we were really intent on following Him. It's like God hits the save button at that moment. So you don't have to do all that work again. You go back and you start from there. But the most important thing in this guy's life was not only did he know where to go, but he knew who to go to. He knew that he had to call out to the Master who was Elisha, who was the prophet of God because he was the miracle worker, the one who was the man speaking for God. And he knew he had to go to him if he was going to get anything done. And one of the things that happens in life is we go to every place imaginable looking for hope and revitalization than the one place that actually can provide it. This week, I was thinking through this and just thinking about all the things that people put their hope into. I mean, they put their hope in a boyfriend or a girlfriend, into a marriage, into a relationship, into children, 
into a job, into a career. Like, that'll get me back on track. If I can just get this, that'll get me back on track. This week I did something for only the fifth time in my life. I walked into a booth and I put a check mark next to a name for the person that I want to be the next president of the United States of America. And I voted in that moment what my conscience and my conviction and what I believe God would have me to do. And I'm proud of the fact that I vote. But as I sat there and walked out, I saw someone this week put, does meaning I voted early mean that I don't have to hear any more commercials or debates or anything? It can just be done, right? It's not going to change, obviously. But I, I became aware this week of the rhetoric. And even believers, who if you listen to their language, it's like they've placed every bit of faith and hope and trust in a particular candidate to set everything right. Now listen, I... I believe we need to vote. I believe we need to be good citizens. But the moment we place our hope, our trust, our faith in any man in a government position, we have lost. If you listen to it, just listen to it over the next three or four weeks. It's as if if something outcome happens, either everything's going to be destroyed or everything's going to be great again. Can I tell you that neither of those are true? Unless God wills it one way or the other. You see, the only place to put your hope, your faith, and your trust is in the one who is deserving of it, and he doesn't have an R or a D after his name. It is the Lord God Almighty. And if you're in a place where you're in a funk, you're in a doldrum, you're in a kind of just, you don't know what happened, but you're here, and you don't like it, the only one who can restore you. No substance, no relationship, no career, nothing can restore you except for the Lord God Almighty. When you're in trouble, you've got to know where to look. But here's the second thing, and we're going to do this story quickly. You've got to realize the power that's available to you. Look at this next story. I love it. The king of Aram. So right after that, it just switches real quick. The king of Aram was waging war against Israel. He conferred with his servants, my camp will be at such and such place. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, be careful passing by that place for the Arameans are going down there. Consequently, the king of Israel sent word to the place the man of God had told him about. The man of God repeatedly warned the king, so the king was on his guard. Here's what's happening. The Arameans, we talked about them a couple of weeks ago, are going in and out, raiding. They're going to this war, and they decide we're going to put an all-out war, and we're going to destroy Israel. There's only one problem. Elisha keeps knowing where they're going to be. And as he tells the king, they keep avoiding. Verse 11 says, The king of Aram was enraged. You know the most frustrating thing when you're trying to spring a surprise attack? is that you spring the surprise attack and nobody's there. Or you spring the surprise attack and it's not a surprise. He called his servants and demanded, tell me which one of us is for the king of Israel. In other words, who's the mole? Who's the spy? Who's giving away our positions? And I love the answer one of his servants says, it's not any of us, my Lord, it, the king. It's Elisha, the prophet he tells the king of Israel, even the words you speak in your bedroom, the words in the bedroom spoken were the most intimate words and they were not to be known by anybody. So the king says, 
we'll talk in a minute about how ridiculous it is that the king wants to go capture the man that keeps telling him the positions of where he is and moving. Go get him. I'm going to capture him. When he was told, Elisha's in Dothan, he said, horses, chariots, a massive army. The word massive in the original language means really, really, really big. They went by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of God, servant of the man of God, got up early and went out, he discovered an army with horses and chariots surrounding the city. Not the way you want to wake up. So he said to Elisha, Oh, my master, what are we to do? And Elisha said, Don't be afraid. For those who are with us outnumber those who are with them. Now get the scene for a moment before we finish the story. Elisha's in camp. This army has come and their sole purpose is to get one man. And the servant of Elisha, you have to understand, sometimes when you read this story, you get the feeling that Elisha's surrounded by an army and it's his army and that army. No, it's just Elisha and his little group of guys at camp. Some seminary boys and Elisha. The servant gets up and says, Elisha, I don't know if you've looked outside, but there's like a, you know, an army out there. And What are we going to do? I mean, it's hopeless. So there's no way out. They're surrounded us. There are more of them. And Elisha says, don't worry. And then he says, because there's more of us than there is of them. I can just imagine the servant going, no, I'm one, two, three. No, they're, they're, I, I trust you, but... You're counting. Your math has never been your strong suit. That's a little off. And then Elisha does, says this. He prayed out loud, Lord, open his eyes that he may see. And my first thought is, as he's praying that, the guy is doing the, you know, the eyes closed, kind of looking up like, my eyes are open, Elisha. I see. I, I mean... That's the reason I told you, because I could see. And it says immediately when his eyes are opened spiritually, he sees gathered, covering the mountains, an unseen army. That's a movie kind of moment, isn't it? Just an awesome picture. As he prays and his eyes are opened to what is surrounding him. As you can imagine, they win. Elisha gets away. But what I want you to understand today is no situation, no matter how far you feel you are from the Lord, no situation is hopeless. In fact, over in Ephesians chapter 1, you can just write this down, you don't have to go there. This is where we're going to finish today. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul prays for us and all believers that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. Similar to what Elisha prayed. So that we may know What is the hope of His calling? The idea there is that we may know what we've been called to. What we've been called to is to be a part of this grand design, grand plan, where Jesus Christ has come and saved us. He has bought us. He has redeemed us. He has risen from the grave. And He promises a hope and a future to us that is beyond what we can ask or imagine. That we are a part of a grander design than we can ever imagine. I pray, Lord, that they'll understand that what they're going through is not some minuscule little problem, but that they are important to the greater kingdom of God that is the story that we all live a part of and that one day that hope is going to be fulfilled. I pray they know the hope of His calling. I pray they know how rich they are. How rich I am. Have you seen my bank account? Have you seen what I'm driving? That's not rich. That's not what it's talking about. 
It says that you have riches that are beyond compare. That we have treasures laid up for us in heaven. That by the fact that Jesus Christ died for us, we are valued more than anything else in the universe. We are God's people. And because of that, we have His inheritance. But not only do we have His inheritance, it tells us, what is in verse 19, the immeasurable greatness of His power to us who believe. He uses in that one phrase four different words that mean power. Stacked on top of each other. It is terrible grammar. But really good theology. What he says is, what is the power, 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 power He has for us. To us who believe according to His power. You see, the thing that we have to understand, when we've lost our edge, when we've found ourselves away from the Lord, when we find ourselves in a relationship we don't know how to get up, we find ourselves in a place we don't know how to move forward, we find ourselves in a financial situation, then how in the world am I going to get done with that? When we find ourselves in a situation where we're removed from the Lord and away from Him and we think, I could never get back. That it is His power that will bring us back, not yours. But what it takes is recognizing where you are and knowing who to call out and who to go to in those moments. So let me ask you, have you lost your edge? Are you in a place, you don't know how you got there, but you're there. The fire is not what it used to be in your passion for the Lord. You're doing things, saying things, living in ways that you never imagined you would previously. Can I just say that the most important step is to recognize it today. Don't let another Sunday pass when you're just living it. Recognize it today and be ready to be changed by Him. Let's pray together.